Was it really worth it? Was it worth all the effort, the blood, sweat, and tears, the struggle, the repetitive message that a prophet took to three separate kings over a span of 70 years of his life? Was it really worth it, looking back, to see everything that he had warned, everything that he had preached, everything that he had appealed to, every concept that he had conveyed to the leadership of his own nation, every sermon he had ever delivered, every message from God he had ever taken, and this man had access to the White House of his day, and to eventually see that that nation, through three separate dynasties of kings, rejected his message continually, misunderstood his motives, threw him in jail, actually worse than jail, threw him down into a slime pit, which was really the outhouse. When aged Jeremiah waded ashore through the surf and the forbidding rocky coastlands of the British Isles with old Brack, as they called him in the Irish annals, or Baruch the scribe, who it says in tradition was the uncle of a young teenage girl named Teatefi. And Jeremiah could look back at the fact that from Josiah to Hezekiah, he had taken the message of God and said continually, God is angry, God is pent up with wrath, God is boiling over in his eagerness to, as the Bible shows, boil the scum out of a filthy pot that is his people, Israel and Judah. Jeremiah, for all of his lifetime, and he began when he was a boy, and ended when he was an aged, stoop-shouldered, white-haired old patriarch, continually wept for the state of affairs in his own nation. He wrote the book of the Lament, or his Lamentation, saying, Mine eye runneth down with tears all the day long for the plight of my people. The children swoon in the streets. Their skin is black, their little arms like sticks. They pour out their life for their soul in their mother's bosom. How is the daughter of Zion spoiled? They that have lain thee waste dance in the streets and say, We have done it. We wouldn't have believed it would come to pass, but we have seen the destruction of Zion. Time after time, Jeremiah took a message directly to the leadership. And finally, that final king, who was following in the ways of all those who had come before, sacrificing in the high places, allowing pornography, incest, bestiality, homosexuality, the spread of venereal disease, rape, murder, robbery, mayhem, a rip-off of the white-collar and the blue-collar community of the poor and the destitute, every evil that human beings can work or wreak upon another human being, that nation was guilty of. God said, the contrary part is in thee of any other old whore. Most whores receive money for their favors, but thou payest thine lovers to consort with thee. God's message to those leaders was a message that was exceedingly clear, right to the point, repetitive, never failing to tell them exactly what was going to happen. And finally, Jeremiah said, You, O king, are going to live to see your wife and your beautiful young daughters become harlots to serve as the troops of Nebuchadnezzar's army. You're going to see yourself and your sons dragged into captivity into Babylon. You're going to see your two young boys you saw from precious babyhood 
killed, slain with the sword before your eyes, the last thing you will ever see, because instantly after they do that, they're going to poke out your eyes, and you're going to live manacled in slavery for the rest of your days with that ringing in your brain, indelibly imprinted in your mind. I can't stand this anymore. Take that wretch and throw him in jail. And so they did. They threw him into a slime pit. They let him down all the way to his elbows in the outhouse, excrement, slime, and slop to breathe. But the king was a little worried about Jeremiah's state and condition, so he went by and he surreptitiously at night called down there, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, are you all right? I'm still alive down here. Well, listen... Let me get you out of there, and I'll put you in the king's court and feed you at least with bread and water. Fine. So they lowered down a rope, and he put it under his armpits, and they dragged him out, reeking with slime. And when he got washed off and he was in the king's court, the king came by and said, you might characterize it. Now, look, Jeremiah, this is, this is me, the, the king. I mean, you can talk to me. You, you can tell me what the real word is from God. Surely you've got some good news today, Jeremiah. Of course, holding over the back of his mind the little threat, the slime pit's still waiting out there, or even worse. I can do anything to you I want. You're in my power completely. Now, you can have the option of fresh clothes and a bed to sleep on and bread and water and be here under house arrest, or you can go back to the slime pit. But he didn't say that. That was merely implied. So, Jeremiah, what is the word from the eternal? Now, here was an opportunity for Jeremiah and all of the school of the prophets and all those who believed in his message to just knock a few rough edges off what he was saying and temper it down a little bit, make it a little more palatable to the king, compromise with his message just a little bit, and stay right there in the king's courthouse. And who knows, maybe even be given the freedom to run around the palace grounds. Jeremiah said, your wife and your daughters are going to become horrors to serve as the troops of Nebuchadnezzar's army, and your two sons are going to be killed, and your eyes are going to be put out, and you're going to spend the rest of your days in captivity unless you repent. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's army came, and Jeremiah was released from prison by that army, given diplomatic immunity and a political passport, with Gedaliah went to Egypt and later on took a ship of Dan and went to the British Isles, where somewhere, perhaps around Glastonbury, he was buried as an old, aged man. His entire life, 70 years perhaps or more, spent in trying to convey a message to the leadership of his own people. Did he fail? How would you evaluate Jeremiah's life? How would you say he had done? Would he look back along his life's work and say, it was worth it? When God first called Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, oh, I can't take your word, Lord, I'm but a child. Say not that you are but a child, because I have cleansed thee, and I have put my words in thy mouth, God said. From the time of his young teenage to his elderly 80s or 90s, Jeremiah did a work of God. Did he fail? The nation went down the drain. Everything that he said came to pass. The king saw his wife and daughters become whores to service the army, and maybe they made him watch. He saw his own sons killed before his eyes, and then his eyes were put out. 
And then he lived a few more months or years in slavery and died as a craven, wretched animal in captivity with the sights and the sounds of the destruction of his own family ringing, clanging around in his brain, remembering what Jeremiah had told him. Was it worth it? God's commission to Jeremiah consisted of a rather strange statement you read in some of the first chapters of the book of Jeremiah, that I have set thee this day over the nations to pull down and to destroy and to plant and to build. And you will find in Alan's book called Judah's Scepter and Joseph's Birthright, in my father's book, which I understand has been taken out of print, called The United States and British Commonwealth in Prophecy, and in my book, which acknowledges the source of many of these men's work, including about 54 separate bibliographical references to other works which were commonplace in the 17th century in Great Britain, when perhaps 70% of the clergy of the Church of England acknowledged freely the fact that the people of England were Ephraim and were a part of the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel. And in all of that literature, you will see the evidence of where God's people were planted, and how Ezekiel's prophecy, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, the throne of David that God had promised in the Davidic covenant would never fail on this earth to have the seed of David sitting upon the throne of David somewhere on this earth until Christ come, and it will no more be overturned, but Christ will inherit as the Annunciation came to Mary when she was pregnant with Jesus miraculously, he shall inherit the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Where is there today the Japan, Azerbaijan, Belarusia, the Ukraine, the United States, Norway, Denmark, Dahomey, Chad, Niger, Costa Rica? Where is there today a dynasty of royalty who each time a new member of that family accedes or ascends to the throne, they are crowned, seated on a rock. And a crown is placed upon their head as the Archbishop of Canterbury prays that ancient prayer about thy people Israel. And that stone is under a coronation chair on display, but now guarded very carefully. The first time I ever saw it in 1956, in Westminster Abbey in London, it had a sign, and it said, Jacob's Pillar, not pillow, pillar, because he set it up as a pillar and anointed it with oil, Jacob's Pillar stone, and there were ancient, old, worn, rusted iron handles protruding out of the side of that slab of stone. I was invited to Washington, D.C. some years ago to attend a reception for Anwar and Jihan Sadat. I had spent some time with Jihan Sadat and Anwar Sadat on several occasions in my visits to Egypt and had interviewed practically the entirety of his cabinet, including the equivalent of our Speaker of the House, the leaders of most of their newspapers and magazines, one of whom had been in prison and was let out by Anwar Sadat when he overthrew the previous government, who was the editor of Al-Haram. Several of those men have since been assassinated, one of them in Cyprus. And, of course, I wept as a young boy might when I saw Anwar Sadat shot to ribbons that day on living color in television. When I was there at that reception in Washington, D.C., having been on one of the leading television channels in Washington, D.C. for several years, including about a year and a half or two of daily television, I walked up to then-Secretary of State Cyrus Vance, 
and shook hands, and he told me how often he watched the program and how he enjoyed it. I walked up to Nelson Rockefeller and shook hands. Nelson Rockefeller, at one time, potential presidential candidate. He told me how often he watched the program and how he enjoyed it. I shook hands with Hubert Humphrey, a presidential candidate, and he told me how often he watched the program and how he enjoyed it. When I flew Edwin Muskie from Boston to Washington National Airport, he told me how often he watched the program and how he enjoyed it. When I was sitting on the front lawn of Lyndon Baines Johnson's residence at Johnson City in Texas, and Lady Bird came out with a pitcher of cold tea, and Lyndon had taken us all over the ranch and shown us his exotic herd of black buck, Lyndon told me with his usual Texas disclaimer, watch your program all the time. Agree with much of what you say. Now, during that time in the 60s, 70s, and on up into the 80s, when, of course, I have not been on quite as many stations as before, there has been a rather persistent, repetitive message that I have delivered to the American people. Yes, there are seasonal variations, Christmas, Easter, New Year's. Yes, there are other doctrinal subjects, AIDS, marriage and divorce, juvenile delinquency, pornography, child crime. Yes, there are doctrinal programs about born again, no ever-burning hell, you don't go to heaven when you die. But sooner or later in the entire panorama or the spectrum of one year's 52 weeks television broadcasting, I'm going to be dealing with biblical prophecy. How many times, those of you who watch the program, have you watched me do programs either from Israel or about Israel talking about watch the Middle East, watch Europe, watch Germany. A United States of Europe is going to emerge as a reunified Germany, including some of the Eastern European countries, comes together in a great big supranational power block, including 250 million people of all the races from the Urals to the Atlantic Wall, embodying not only modern, conventional, super-sophisticated weapons, but nuclear capability to emerge as a third power block to arbitrate between East and West, actually emerge as a superpower bigger than the United States or the Soviet Union. Some of you remember being in Big Sandy in the tabernacle way back in the middle 1960s when I was saying to crowds during the depth of the Cuban Missile Crisis that war with the Soviet Union and the United States is not prophesied but that you will live to see the time when the Soviet Union and the United States well may be allied together once again against a common enemy. Those men, Cyrus Vance, Hubert Humphrey, Nelson Rockefeller, and President Jimmy Carter, and President Reagan, and before them, other presidents dating back to Eisenhower, watched and heard that program. They heard it, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Now, as I told some of you people from Denver recently, the CIA didn't know, the FBI didn't know, the NSC didn't know, Naval Intelligence didn't know, none of the intelligence communities knew, and our government was taken by surprise in November 1989 when the wall came down, and taken by an even greater surprise, for which the media has given the government an awful lot of heat, because none of the intelligence community advised our cabinet or our president or his national security advisors that the absolute fragmentation, disintegration of the Soviet socialist republics was about to occur, that we were going to see the unbelievable spectacle of major republics of the Soviet Union going independent, rejecting communism, outlawing communism, kicking the communist boss, uh, bosses out, saying communism is an utter failure, and embracing democracy. 
capitalism, trying to come on board and join the global economic community and political community of all of those who enjoy freedom, a multiple party system, the ballot box. Ballots, not bullets. Can you believe in your mind what has been happening from November 1989 until right now today? Or are you like a lot of other Americans whose attention span is about that long? Let me give you an analogy. During the Gulf War, I was writing my head off. Saddam, the monster we created. How we're going to win the war and lose the peace. Article after article after article. And I was doing television one after another. And our telephones were ringing off the walls and we were breaking records. We had over 4,000 calls one weekend. We couldn't keep up with all the demand. They couldn't wait to get their hands on these brochures and booklets and articles about the Gulf War. Is it the King of the North? Is it prophesied? Is Russia going to invade? Is Saddam the beast? We have one fellow that dropped out of the church, started his own church. He claims Saddam's the beast, for pity's sake. Some people claim Saddam's the King of the North, for pity's sake. And nearly every one of the would-be seers, sages, and prophets of this modern day, including Hal Lindsey, have hammered home one prophetic theme for the last 45 or 50 years. And what is that? Who is the beast in their view? How many of you know? That's right. Here at Russia, coming right back immediately out of the crowd. What was it that led the United States to put in place the DEW line? Russia, right? What was it that caused us to fight Vietnam with one arm tied behind our back in fear of the harbor and the mining of the harbor and giving safe sanctuary over there and allowing our men to be slaughtered like cannon fodder, committing them piecemeal into a war in the jungle that could never be won because we didn't want to go in there and deprive the enemy of a safe base? Fear of who? Russia, right? Did our intelligence community continually tell from the Pentagon to the White House the leadership of that day, and an earlier day in Korea when our president sacked MacArthur, who wanted to use a long Tom cannon with limited-range nuclear weapons to deprive the Manchurians, communist Chinese, of safe harbor, and said, we will win the war in Korea. And Harry Truman said, no, we won't, because we're afraid of Russia. The other day, there was a panel discussion. A man named Ankerberg, who is pretty adept on the cutting floor with the tape, that he takes the people to make them say things they didn't say when he interviewed me one time. He had all of these leading lights of prophecy there before him. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to put together the shattered, tattered shards and torn fabric of their stupid theories. As God says through his prophet Ezekiel, they daub the wall, they temper it, or they daub it and whitewash it with untempered mortar. Thy breach is as great as the sea, God says. They build a wall, another whitewashes it, and they say, I see, I see, when God has not spoken. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. So all of these guys were there. Hal Lindsey, a whole bunch of names you would recognize. You know what they were telling these millions of people watching that program? Russia is the beast. Russia is going to invade Palestine. It must have titillated them beyond belief when they found the fragmentation of 15 Soviet socialist republics devolved down into a rather reluctant group of 10 that decided to vote to keep some kind of a union together under Gorbachev, where Yeltsin, of course, over one of the major republics in Ukraine and others now, and of course, terrible problems in Georgia where you're about to have civil war because already what I've been telling our people for so many years is beginning to occur in Central Europe and Yugoslavia. It also is occurring in some of the Russian republics right now, which means that people who are deprived 
bereft of the necessities of life, so of uh, food, clothing, and shelter, will take to the streets and demonstrate. When you got four people abreast around four blocks waiting for a supermarket to open, it's got one potato on the shelf, and it's going to be very, very cold out there. The, some of the pictures we've seen of the Soviet people are absolutely heartrending. And there are people in Congress trying to get a lot of our people now to say, let's go ahead and shovel them a few billion dollars and send them all of our wheat from Kansas because we've got to help these Russian people get through the winter. And yet some of these people are still trying to salvage their shattered, tattered doctrinal ideas about Russia being the beast. But a United States of Europe with Germany at its head is the beast. A United States of Europe with Germany at its head is the king of the north. A United States of Europe with Germany at its head is going to be a multilateral force to move into Palestine at the behest of the Pope because... The old Holy Roman Empire was always a Germanic empire, wasn't it? Who was Friedrich the Great? Who was Barbarossa, after whom Hitler named his operation against the Soviet Union? Who was Otto the Great? Who were the von Habsburgs? They were all Germans. And the Soviet Union did not figure into it until after World War II, when a federation of all kinds of conquered states, including... Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, East Prussia formerly, and parts of Poland, which used to be East Prussia. And new cartographers got busy drawing new lines on maps, just like they're frantically doing today. They don't know where they're all the lines because everything's in such a state of flux. And nations emerged after World War I that had never existed before. And the Danzig Corridor, and the deep militarized zone in Saarland. And they're called the Rhineland, around the Rhine River, between there and France, and so on. All of these things were completely artificial. That's why the Serbs and Croats are at it today, because Yugoslavia, really several different peoples. But enough of that. The important thing is that my father, Herbert W. Armstrong, like a modern Jeremiah or a modern Ezekiel, in the waning days of 1943, early 44, when he saw Mussolini cannot be the beast now, even though he wrote that earlier and people have taken him to task over it, because he fought that in 1935, 6 and 7, when Mussolini eclipsed Hitler. Later, when Hitler came up and eclipsed Mussolini, he began to realize then Hitler must be the beast and not Mussolini. Hitler is the greater of the two dictators because of his military power. When my father saw the war going the other way, he had the courage to say, well, then I was wrong. And this isn't going to be the war to lead Hitler and Mussolini to link up with the Japanese in the Middle East and to occupy Palestine, even though he wrote in the Plain Truth magazine, which was really a printed paper back in those days, that it was likely that the Axis powers, since they were already within sight and sound of Alexandria, Egypt, would go right on through and take the Suez Canal, which at that time was like a part of the jugular of the British Empire. And he thought if they went into Palestine, that was the beginning of the Great Tribulation, America and Britain were going to lose the war. But North Africa turned the tide. And eventually the African Corps was expelled from Africa, and when it was, my father said, well then, this isn't the last war. There will be a third world war. Germany will go down to defeat. The Nazis will go underground. They will escape. They will disappear. They will bide their time. And eventually Germany will rise again out of the ashes of defeat and once again become a powerful nation. When he saw Germany partitioned and divided, he said it's going to be temporary. It lasted 50 years, approximately. That's kind of temporary when you look at it from the perspective of a 93-year-old, just as it was kind of temporary as Jeremiah looked back at his life. The lifetime of one man is but the batting of an eye in a span of history. 
as God says, we will look back just as does God, and a thousand years is as one day. So what is 70 years out of a thousand? Just like minutes, part of an hour, over so quickly, and we don't evaluate correctly the span of history, the march of history, and how quickly things do happen. Recently, a leading spokesman for that organization, to whom my father left his legacy, to whom he officially passed the baton, was asked by some of the leading networks, and I believe in this case it was a Canadian news agency, about what my father had written and what the church had always taught about Europe and about Germany and all these things happening in Europe. And the official spokesman said words to the effect that, well, we're not emphasizing that anymore. We're not emphasizing that anymore. I have here the excerpts, and I would ask all of you who don't have a copy to be sure to get a copy of the article we are reprinting from that 1990 issue of Watch Magazine, which included about 54 separate quotations from old plain truths, good news, TCWs, uh, should say, Tomorrow's World, TW, TCW, 20th Century Watch, and many of my own tapes and radio and television broadcasts going back quite a number of years, including this one from the plain truth, June 1952, the previous month on the 17th of that month. I got out of the Navy in San Francisco and drove back down to Pasadena, California, and my brother-in-law, Vern Matson gave me a job in the office where there were 11 people working to maintain the files on Ambassador College campus, which had the next year 36 students. The size of the Church of God in the entirety of the world, less than 100, meeting in the college library in Pasadena, California. This paper came out a month later. Quote, the ten horns in the 17th chapter of Revelation will be the revival of the beast, the Roman Empire, out of the bottomless pit by a United States of Europe or a federation of ten European nations within the bounds of the old Roman Empire. Within the bounds of the old Roman Empire, that includes Eastern Europe, 1952. 1953, September, riots that occurred in East Germany. This is the beginning of East German revolt against red tyranny. How before its time it was. 53, 63, 73, 83, 90, 89 really, before it came to pass. Czechoslovakia, Poland, and other conquered nations behind the Iron Curtain have witnessed similar uprisings in recent weeks. It will take time, but Russia is going to lose out in some of these countries. What happened in 1965 in Hungary? When people took to the streets with nothing but bottles and rocks against Soviet tanks that came in and crushed the Hungarian Revolution, which did not ever really come to fruition. I don't want to quote a lot of these because there are way too many of them. You can read them. The Plain Truth, March 1962. In the determination of the leaders of the common market nations to restore the Holy Roman Empire with all that that means, united within ancient boundaries of the Holy Roman Empire, united by the common spiritual bond of universal Catholicism, and it says the United Europe will form a non-aggression pact for political alignment of some sort with the Soviet East. This united Europe will then consolidate its gains. 1962, November, Germany, not atheistic communist Russia, is ultimately going to support an Arab Union against the Jews and against Israel, Britain and America. This is what prophecy foretells over and over and over again. 
year after year, decade after decade. My father, Herbert W. Armstrong, believed this. I believe it. I believe we are Manasseh. I believe Britain is Ephraim. I believe Germany at the head of the United States of Europe will emerge as the beast. I believe the Pope is the false prophet. Now let me ask you this question. Since that is a very unpopular view, Catholics don't like it at all. Germans don't care for it very much. Since that is a very unpopular view, and since I believe that the number of stations upon which we are able to air that view is going to gradually increase as God gives us the manpower to see to it, where do you think, as that spotlight of anger and of hostility and of looking for a scapegoat, as it searches around the religious organizations and it looks at Hal Lindsey or Dr. Billy Graham or the Hour of Power or all of the other programs or at one of the number two rated programs in the United States of America that talks about with one professor the other day interviewing on the subject of ethics called The World Tomorrow. Where is the spotlight going to halt? Where is it going to stop? Who is going to be the Jeremiah of that day? Who will be the Ezekiel of that time? Who will be thrown into jail then? Let's go to the book of Acts right quickly, to the fourth chapter. Let's ask this from another point of view. As Jesus Christ was there being whipped and beaten that night, before he was to drag his stake through the streets and the daughters of Zion were weeping, and he said, Don't weep for me, because if they do this in the day of the green tree, what shall they do in the dry? And he could look around and realize that he had lost none as he prayed to his father in the 14th through the 17th chapters of John that we read traditionally every Passover season. I have lost none, save the son of perdition, whom thou gavest me. And yet, at the last moment of extremis, as Peter was told to put up his sword after he had hacked off Malcolm's ear, Peter then, seeing how bad this was going, that these neo-revolutionaries were not going to ride roughshod over the Sanhedrin and the Roman occupying power and reestablish a permanent physical kingdom then, because that's what they expected, which is why Peter took out his sword, having misunderstood what Christ said, let him that hath no sword sell his cloak and go buy one. Lord, here are two swords, they said at the Passover supper. Then Jesus could look, and there were forms scurrying away in the dark, and they all forsook him. Even John. Now, John hung back and followed along and tried to watch and saw a little later on, as did Peter. They met each other, skulking around in the shadows. And you remember, and you've read probably the book on real Jesus, and you've read the gospel accounts of how Peter then, warming himself over the fire when the girl Rhoda had let him in the gate, cursed, took God's name in vain, and denied he'd ever known the man. What did Jesus think on the stake? Had Christ come to save the world then? If he had to save his people, had he succeeded? Even his own disciples forsook him. What would Jesus have thought about his success ratio? How would he have evaluated his ministry? How had he done? They're killing him, and all his disciples fled then how would these men have evaluated what they were doing? In the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, as they spake unto the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. They laid hands on them and put them in the hold until the next day, because it was now eventide. 
albeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. That's some kind of an evangelistic campaign. 5,000 converts, and on the day of Pentecost, 3,000. This church was growing by leaps and bounds, thousands of people waiting in line to be baptized. Albeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. It came to pass on the morrow, and that would have really shook up the leaders, because they saw their financial base and their power base eroding right before their very eyes. And Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were the kindred of the high priest, and they always tend to do that, you know, family clans, kind of put their own people in position of power, were gathered together at Jerusalem, and when they would set them in the midst, they said, now by what power? They're under the tribunal now, they're before the grand jury, they're before the bar, they've got to ask and give a testimony for themselves. Or, by what name have you done this? Then Peter Filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day, look at the wisdom here, if you're examining us because of this remarkable healing, this helpless cripple who was made whole, if that's what we're on trial for here, look at that wisdom with which he speaks. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, Man, that's powerful. You see anybody backing off there? Anything being taken out of print there? Anything being re removed in circulation there? Any black rubber stamp being put over somebody's byline right there? Is there any knocking off the rough edges of this rock that is rolling over people, as Christ said, that eventually is going to crush them, a stone of stumbling? By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness and perceived that all the people were there backing them. They were ignorant men, they thought, because of their speech, which was Galilean, and they didn't have the doctoral degrees from the seminaries of their day. They said, what shall we do to these men? Verse 16, for indeed, now this is your usual political caucus. This is a group of, of people who are pragmatists. What will work? What will go down here? What do you think we can get away with? It has nothing to do with ethics. There's no morality here. There's no honesty here, and there is no spirit of God here. There is merely a caucus of a group of politicians wearing religious robes saying, what do you think the population is going to stand for? So, it is obvious that a notable miracle has been done by them. That's evident to everybody in Jerusalem, and we, we cannot deny it. We wish we could, and if we could, we would, but we cannot deny it. These are beautiful people, aren't they? They live in places like Washington, D.C., state capitals. They live all over our country. And sometimes they broadcast on the news media, too, as we heard in the sermonette. But that it spread no further among the people, because that would be bad for the people. It's like a cancer. We can't let this thing get out of hand. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, look at all they were doing. I mean, this is no big deal, is it? 
They let them have the truth about the soul and heaven and hell and Sabbath and the holy days and tithing and clean and unclean meats and marriage and divorce and the kingdom of God and the law of God and the government of God and they let them have the picture and the plan of salvation and they let them have water baptism and the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit. They let them have the entire panoply, panorama of doctrine except just one little item, a name. And why can't you do like most people when they stand up and give the benediction at a great big political event and say, We do thank thee, our dear Father in heaven. Amen. Because you don't want to offend the Jews, right? And you have a, a group. You've all been to occasions where I've heard people just go right straight to the end of the prayer to Amen. And they don't use Jesus' name. Now, why couldn't these people just easily say, Now, look, God wants us to do the work. And he wants us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And I can just see the reasoning working in, in minds that might say, now, there's, we're to give none offense. And, and doesn't Paul come along later on and say, you know, kind of, under the Romans do as the Romans do, honor to whom honor, and custom to whom custom. So let's just dress this up a little bit. We'll just omit the name of Jesus, and we can talk instead about Messiah. The Jews talk about Messiah all the time. And we can talk about Messiah will come. We don't have to say he already has come. We can just say Messiah is going to come because the Jews allow us to say that. So why don't we just dress up our doctrine in a tuxedo and a little bow tie where it will go down, be palatable to these people, and get on with the work. So they called them and commanded, verse 18, that they are not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you fellows more than to listen unto God, well, I guess you folks will have to be the judge of that. But we cannot speak except that which we have seen and heard. I mean, all we can do is tell it the way it is, the way it happened, what we saw, what we heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. Now, who was really in fear here? Well, the pompous, posturing, religious, political leadership because they feared the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. Now, the man was about 40 years old in which the miracle had been done, and they were let go. They came to their own company, and they told everybody what the chief priests and the elders had said, and they heard that. They lifted up their voice with one accord, and one of them must have led in prayer. But they said, Lord, verse 24, Thou art our God. And every time you talk about God and his great power, you see the apostles and the elders of Israel and the patriarchs and God himself revealing himself to Job as creator. You are God who have made heaven and earth and the sea and everything that swims in it and walks upon it who by the mouth of your servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And of a truth, against your holy servant, as it should read in the margin, says that in my Bible, Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, were gathered together. All the authorities, all the big powers, the Romans, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, everybody that had authority and power of life and death. For to do whatever you, in your counsel, had allowed, determined, scheduled beforehand, should be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. 
by stretching forth your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, God decided he let them know, I heard that, and I love it. Mm. The room rumbled and shook. A few stones fell down off the parapet, crashed into the street. God sent an earthquake. Wouldn't that be an answer to prayer? You're standing there, and all of a sudden you're kind of dizzy. Or maybe it's a clear sky, and kaboom, thunder hits right outside. You know, God can do that if he wants to. So God sent an earthquake, and they were the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't mean they stood there and babbled together. It means that from then on, it means from now on into the rest of their ministry and their lives, they spake the word of God with boldness. And in verse 33, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. If my father Herbert W. Armstrong were to be visiting in some of the towns where some of you folks live and work, and maybe I'm on television there, maybe the world tomorrow is on television there. Now, you could give it this year, next year, or ten years from now, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, in the backdrop of what happened in the New Testament church. What would my father say as he would look back at all that has been done from the time of his death and all that is taking place now? If you were to read, holding his own hands, an article that said it's perfectly all right for us to say today, I have been born again, because the real meaning of John the third chapter is born from above, in print and on tape. Oh, if Jesus had said to Nicodemus, thou must be born from above, Nicodemus would have said, how, Lord, how may I be born from above. What kind of a birth is it of which you speak? But Jesus didn't say, from above, no matter what some biblical translators have tried to make him say. He said, born again. So Nicodemus, hearing very clearly his own native tongue, said, how is it that a man, when he is old, can be born again? How do I get back up inside my old mother's womb? and come out as a brand new baby all over again. Is there any doubt in anyone's mind in this room today that Jesus Christ meant born again? But the leader who has the baton said, born from above, already born again. About three years ago, at the Feast of the Passover, it was stated that the stripes of Jesus Christ are no longer efficacious for the healing of physical sin, or sin which brings on physical debility and disease, even in spite of the fact that in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, for this cause many of you are sick, afflicted, and many have died, not discerning, quote, the Lord's body, end quote. Now recently, the booklet entitled, The United States and British Commonwealth in Prophecy, has been withdrawn from print. Recently, leaders of the organization have said, all of our doctrines are up for review. And recently, the book that was hailed when my father wrote it, although I wrote part of it, and I'll explain that briefly, called The Mystery of the Ages, of which many of you have a hardback copy, and so do I, which was hailed by my father and the church at that time as one of the greatest books to be written since the Bible. And even though it is a very kind of mixed-up hodgepodge, frankly, in the past 20, 30, 40 years, 
by letters, co-worker letters, by other things, and then here and there some modern editing and touch-up my father had done. But mistakenly, without them realizing it, they had taken major segments out of a book that I wrote about half of or more called 1975 in Prophecy, in which I related the account that only I knew of a little creek that had been caused to flow again as a result of an earthquake in the mountains between Los Angeles and Bakersfield, California, to illustrate what God says about how the mountains shall be brought low and the desert waste shall spring forth and water will come in the desolate places and so on. My father never used words like the Pamir Knot because I don't think he was familiar with that and where it was in geography. And he didn't use words like was used in that. And I can go back and show you exactly the booklet. I have my booklet with everything I wrote right in the pages of which there's practically a whole chapter that I wrote in the book called Mystery of the Ages. Now, that little explanation, because other people by the tens of thousands were fed the line, and it was a line, that my father, at about age 90 or 92, is sitting there working like this on his typewriter until 2 o'clock every morning writing a book. Didn't happen. It was a compilation of dozens of articles and booklets, including some things I wrote. All right, that happens to be a fact. God knows it. Now you know it. But don't take issue with the book. Because 99% or so of what my father wrote is true. And the plan of salvation as he portrays it, and the resurrection, and the second coming of Christ, and the kingdom of God, and the beautiful ending, which is not an ending but the beginning, if you remember, happens to be true. And in many ways, it's a great book. I know, I helped write it. It's a great book. Sorry, don't write out there, call for one, out of print been withdrawn. My father told a story many, many years ago. I've heard it at his dinner table, I've heard it out of the pulpit, and many of you have heard it as well. He went back to Des Moines, where he had gotten an education in the advertising fraternity in Chicago and Des Moines as a young lad, but his uncle Frank, of whom he wrote extensively in his autobiography, was a man that influenced his life very greatly. My father had grown to know, as he wrote for certain trade publications involving some farm implements and other people during that day, in the 1920s and before, he grew, grew to know some multimillionaires of that day, including bankers and heads of corporations. He told a story about a man who had built a bank in Des Moines, Iowa. And by the time I was up and in my middle teens, my father and mother took a trip, including an extensive trip back to their roots in Iowa, where they had both grown up and met and married. My father went into that bank, and he asked after the founder of the bank. And the vice president said, who? Uh, I've never heard of him. And he asked around, and finally they found a secretary who said, oh, now, wait a minute, there was something. That, that, that does spark a name in the back of my mind. And she went and she searched through a file. It's in my father's autobiography. You can get every word of it and see accurately, exactly. If I tell it not quite perfectly, forgive me, but this is my recollection. And they went and they found an old yellow newspaper clipping about the man who had founded the bank. And they gave it to my dad. And he stood there and he read it. And it was really nostalgia. How, how fantastic. But yet there was a sadness about it. Nobody in the bank had ever heard of the man. He said, oh, well, here, you'll want to keep this. And they said, well, did you know him? No, we don't need it. If it means anything to you, go ahead. You can have the clipping. And so he said, rather sadly, the last vestige of the man's name walked out of the bank in Herbert W. Armstrong's pocket. 
with my father if he came and he sat and he watched the world tomorrow and then he watched his son Garner Ted Armstrong feel that his work is being carried on by the organization to whom he passed the baton. If you were to pick up a copy of the Plain Truth magazine of January 1990 and look at the personal written by his successor, no magic words. Europe was in ferment. Nation after nation was toppling. Soviet tanks and armies were being withdrawn from Eastern Europe. The Warsaw Pact was in shards. Germany had reunited. The wall had been breached. Charlottenstrasse was absolutely teeming with tens of thousands of East Germans, and I went there with my cameras and got there for the second weekend of celebration and saw those young East Germans with a big, you know, grin on their face going through Checkpoint Charlie with the first pineapple they had ever held in their mouth. Watch them take their first bite of a, a banana in the history of their lives as the West Germans set up a flea market along the entirety of the main streets of downtown West Berlin. Here was vindication. Here was justification. Here was, I told you so. Here was a life's work coming to fruition, everything toppling into place. Germany reunited. Europe out from behind the Iron Curtain. The way is set now for the creation of a United States of Europe. And on the anniversary of the magazine for which my father gave his life, the one he used to hold up to see the light coming through the window and put the title on it with a stylus, the one my mom used to crank out by hand, the one I used to put slip sheets in to dry when I was only about nine years of age. The title of the article was No Magic Words. There are no magic words in Christianity, he wrote. You can read it. Some of you have it at home. Get it and see if I'm talking about it. I'm telling you the truth. That reminds me of the story of Alabama in the 40 Kings, he wrote. Why... When they wanted to get into the cave, they said, Open sesame, but there are no shortcuts. There are no magic words of Christianity. The man said nothing about Europe, nothing about the beast and the false prophet, nothing about the mark of the beast, nothing about the king of the north, nothing about the Warsaw Pact, nothing about a United States of Europe, nothing about German reunification, nothing about the fact that the Deutschmark may soon become the reserve currency of the world. Let me show you something. It happened just the other day on either C-SPAN or CNN. Maybe you caught it. I caught it down in Panama City Beach about three days ago, since the feast started. I couldn't believe my eyes. Henry Gonzalez is a member of the House of Representatives in the state of Texas. He was addressing the House. And I came on. I saw him. I flipped there because I heard him say something about Germany. And I was fascinated. Sat down, got my coffee cup. I was about to go over to preach to the people. And he was saying, you know, when you hold somebody down and you beat him up, and hold him back, especially if you do so for about 45 years or longer, the chances are once you let him up, he wants to go to fight you. And he was talking about Germany and the Germans, and how strongly they're coming back. And then he began to say that the Deutschmark may become the reserve currency to replace the dollar, and that the American people have moved into the debtor status, and that these other former vanquished enemies of World War II have moved into the creditor status, that they've got the strongest currency in the world, we've got one of the weakest. And then the camera panned around to the House chamber, telling you the truth. It was empty. Anybody here see that? Anybody? Good. Just a couple of you is all it's called that. The House was empty. He was speaking to the record. He was speaking before the television cameras, and only one little cable carried it. Practically nobody heard it. 
But the man was right on. He was saying exactly what we've been talking about. One more piece of that puzzle. He just said, now let me ask, I asked the people up at Denver this question. I'll ask you too. There are hundreds of thousands of other people out there that know the same thing you do, but a lot of them won't admit it, and a lot of them have forgotten it, and they listen about the same way that Hubert Humphrey and Cyrus Vance and Nelson Rockefeller did. In one ear and out the other, it's not important. Some wild-eyed evangelist probably doesn't know what he's talking about. But when the Soviet Socialist Empire came crashing down, and when Eastern Europe came out from behind the Iron Curtain, and the Warsaw Pact fragmented, thus rendering NATO for all practical purposes redundant, were you surprised? No. Nobody was surprised. Not God's people. They weren't surprised. What do you want me to say if NBC, ABC, CBS, or Larry King Live or anybody else comes to me and says, now, Garner Ted, you've been talking for decades about the United States of Europe and about Germany. Do you want me as a leader to say, oh, well, we don't emphasize that anymore? Is that what you want me to say? I don't care if you do. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I didn't mean for that response, but I couldn't help that. I had to throw that in. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, Jesus Christ tells us that as in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. One quick thing while you're turning to Matthew 24, and we'll begin in about verse 33. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, as you well know, was looking back upon a life of sacrifice for Jesus Christ and all of his own work. If you look at church history and you ask yourself in the same vein that I have asked about Jeremiah's work and my father's work and Ezekiel's work or any other prophet or patriarch's work, as they look back along their back trail, they evaluate their life's work, they ask, was it worth it? Was it worth it? It depends on what you mean their work consisted of, what they were supposed to be doing. If you make the mistake of thinking they were trying to convert their race, they failed. If you're saying, like most Protestants do, that Christ came to save the world, well, then there was failure at the end because even his own disciples forsook him. But if you're saying it's sort of like a mother that says, young boy, don't you touch that stove, it's hot. And then the child touches the stove and gets burnt and begins to cry. There's one thing that's never going to come out of his mouth. And that one thing is, but mom, you didn't tell me it was hot. All kinds of other things might come out of his mouth, but he won't be able to look up at you and say, why didn't you tell me? So if God commissioned these people to give a witness and a warning, that's one thing. And for those who hear the witness and warning, as Ezekiel 33, the chapter we know so well about the work of the watchman, tells us, and I can look at that in the case of my own ministry that I can briefly relate to. Yes, it is worth it in one sense of the word. For example, when I was first baptized, my wife and I had a young family coming along, and I began to study in Ambassador College, went down to the Pasadena Public Library and would bring eight books at a time and began to study child psychology. My wife had, had subscribed to a Parent Magazine, had Mothercraft, a big, thick red book about that big. You ought to read the chapter in that thing back in the 1950s before Benjamin Spock about corporal punishment. Oh, they were really against it. You never hit a child, etc. Well, I wrote a booklet entitled Child Rearing, or The Plain Truth About Child Rearing, and there were many people that utilized what was in that booklet. I might redo that sometime, I hope, and 
hopefully emphasize more the reward and the encouragement and all of that and not emphasize quite as much the punishment, etc. But then I was so angry reacting against all of these child psychologists at that time, I think I tended to overreact on their utter abrogation and their hatred of corporal punishment. The school systems were in ferment. Youngsters were attacking teachers. We know now the drug scene in the corridors of American high schools and so on. So let me ask you this question in the backdrop of Garner Ted Armstrong, 1955, 25 years of age, curly black hair, gray jacket. I've got a copy of my first program. I don't know where my son got it. It's down there in the shelf in Tyler in the TV studio. And he showed it to me some months ago. My dad rather awkwardly says, now my son is in this child ring more than I. He gets up, I take the desk, and I talk about a man named Henry Hill who boarded a bus in downtown Sydney, Australia, and some young thugs got on and took a can of Ronsonol lighter fluid and poured it in his lap and tossed the match on it. And I am 25 years of age. I've never spoken in front of a camera in my life. And I'm saying, and they burned him. And I'm so mad I can't stand it about juvenile delinquency. You can hear me almost attempting to emulate my father and other speakers who were leaders in the church at that time because we were all learning together and I had only been out of the Navy about a year and a half or so and had been ordained only a, probably a week or two or three before that program was made in about July of 1955. You can figure how long I'd been on television by that date. Then I wrote for my master's thesis, and it was turned into a booklet, and we advertised it for years. I'm sure they've long since got that one out of print as well. The Plain Truth About Child Rearing, and a booklet about dating, and booklets about marriage and divorce, a booklet entitled How to Have a Happy Marriage. Did I make any difference? Look at society today. Divorce is beyond all bounds of what it was then. More than 50% most in urban communities. Look at all of the genital herpes and infectious gonorrhea and advanced stages of syphilis and all kinds of genital warts and especially AIDS stalking all of us like a dreaded specter of the black death of London in the Middle Ages. And look at youngsters here and there on dope and drugs and more than 50% of our crime, especially burglary, is drug-related. Tremendous amount of murder is drug-related, and unfortunately, it reaches into some of the very lowest wage-earning groups in some of our most downtrodden communities, and it's a horrible blight upon the face of our fair land of the United States. We like to stand up on a beautiful day, and we're here at the Peace of Tabernacles, and we turn to the songbook, America the Beautiful. America, America, thine alabaster cities gleam, undimmed by human tears. Los Angeles, Detroit, Chicago, Bedford-Stuyvesant, New York, Atlanta, Dallas-Fort Worth, the murder capital of the world, Alabaster? How about Pothole Macadam? How about festering, seething, steeping cauldrons of broiled scum, as God describes to the prophet Ezekiel, and he said, I'll burn the scum out of you. Go ahead and take the leg out, but not with a hook, and put it on a fire, and I'll burn it until the vessel is so white hot, thy filthiness and thy scum shall be burnt out of thee, God says to Israel. As I look back along my back trail, was it worth it? Have I made any difference? My answer, I'll hold it for a moment. It depends upon what you're asking me. It depends on what you think I've been trying to do, I guess. 
Have I been sent to change the United States of America? Have I been sent to save our country from what is surely going to come? When God says, pray not for this people, that I will not bring the sword upon them. When he says, the trumpet shall sound and no man shall answer, for they shall all be sick in their tents. The sword bereaves abroad and at home there is as death, famine, and pestilence. Ezekiel was told, go, give them warning for me. Their foreheads will be adamant as flint, but I have made thy forehead as adamant as flint. And they will not listen to thee. They won't pay attention to what you say. Oh, they will say, he's a marvelous speaker, as we read in the last of the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel. And you're like a person playing on a pleasant instrument, but they will hear your words, but they will not do them, for with their heart each one goes after his covetousness. And Ezekiel was told, you take the message anyway. My father was dedicated to what he called the work. Always the work. I grew up with my mother and dad talking about the work. The work of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. But my father very quickly would make people understand that Christ was the greatest prophet who ever lived. And that the pivotal point of all prophecy is Matthew 24. And that only through the lights or the glasses of Matthew 24 can we really see the sequential progression of the prophecies of the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. And we can see that Ezekiel himself wrote in sequence. If my father had not understood that, how could we have been saying in the depths of the Cuban-Kennedy Missile Crisis, when millions of Americans were thinking World War III was in the offing, war with Russia and the United States is not going to come? Because the 36th chapter of Ezekiel portrays what? Remember? Interesting chapters there, aren't they? The 33rd is the watchman, remember? The 34th is what? The watchman in contrast with the rotten, filthy, greedy, idle shepherds who are ripping off the flock. And God says, I will lay the blood guiltiness at the door of those shepherds, and I will set one shepherd over them, David, who shall feed them, etc. Now you go on to look at it progressing through the 35th of restoration of Israel, the second coming of Christ, the 36th chapter shows the rebuilding of the waste cities. The 37th chapter is what? Them bones, them bones, them dry bones, remember? The valley of the dry bones, taken from that 37th chapter. 38th and 9th, what? Gog and Magog and the Prince of Rosh. And where do you read of Gog and Magog and the Prince of Rosh coming into a land that it says in the 39th chapter of Ezekiel and 38 is a land, quote, at rest, having neither gate nor bars, having no national defense. Does that describe Israel today? Is Israel a nation with neither gates nor bars? Or is Israel not a nation with a nuclear capability and one of the most super sophisticated air forces and military technologies in the world today? Gates and bars? They got gates and bars up to the heavens around that little nation of Israel. They were fully capable of taking on Saddam Hussein all by themselves had they wanted to do so. It describes Israel at a time of peace. After the millennium. My father knew that because he knew who is Israel and who is Germany. And he saw the sequence of prophecies as Christ himself lays it out. So from the time I was a baby boy, my father stuck to that message. And that's why, because I also have stuck to it, that you weren't surprised. But George Bush was surprised. The cabinet was surprised. The Pentagon was surprised. The NSC was surprised, the CIA was surprised, and the FBI was surprised. 
Surprise, everybody! Communism came crashing down. Now, to show you, as I think I didn't quite complete, the attention span of the American population a little earlier, when I mentioned the Gulf War, my writing many, many articles and us breaking records, the minute it was over, our phone calls and our record, our incoming mail just went flat. The American populace wasn't being entertained anymore. What about the people of God? Why are there so many warnings? Why are there so many reminders and rejoinders in the Word of God, even from the pen of the Apostle Paul, that we not sleep as do others, but that we watch? Why does God describe the church and the condition of the church, listen to this, as being half asleep and half awake? Which half is asleep? The half that is watching? Or the half that is saying, well, we don't emphasize that anymore? Are they God's people? Yeah, they're virgins. Says they are. Do they have God's Holy Spirit? Yes, but it may be waning. Yeah, we need to look at that, don't we? It says here in verse 33, So likewise ye, when you shall see all these things, of Matthew 24, 33, these things, meaning all that he portrays in this sequential series of prophecies of nations against nations, wars and rumors of wars, drought, famine, pestilence, and then persecution upon God's true church. It is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass, and that generation didn't until the typical fulfillment in 70 and 71 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In those days they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah came and entered the ark. In other words, living their lives normally. There was nothing wrong with eating and drinking, nothing wrong with marrying and giving in marriage, but there was something wrong with ignoring the message being shouted from ever higher portions of a huge ship taking place in the nearest cornfield. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. They knew not. Isn't that a remarkable statement? They knew not. They'd heard because Noah preached for 120 years. But they didn't know. Now there are even ministers and the leaders in whose hand has been given a baton. They characterized it as being handed a baton. And they pulled my father's most important booklet that I advertised over the leading channel in Washington, D.C. in the ears of the President and the Congress for probably 10 years or more, the United States and British Commonwealth in Prophecy. It's out of print, out of circulation. They don't send it out anymore. Prophecy? Didn't you say something about Germany? We don't emphasize that anymore. We have been born again. We're looking at the Trinity. How do you react to change, said the article. Fascinating. Fascinating. And frankly, a little frightening as well. God's Word is not characterized as a baton. It's characterized as a two-edged sword that cuts both ways that it cuts to the marrow of the bone, because God's word tells his true servants, cry aloud and spare not and show my people their sins, and give them witness and warning from me. Because when these things come, lo, they shall surely come, they will not delay much longer, then they shall know that I am the Eternal, and they shall know that a man of God was among them. It said they knew not. But they were warned until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two in a field, one taken, the other left. 
Two women doing normal daily household work, grinding, getting ready to cook some bread, one taken, the other left. Verse 42, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in which watch the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready. That's not something that you put off until next month. That's something for right now today. Something for the next ten minutes, the next ten hours, the next ten days. Be ready. A constant state of readiness. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is, let's ask this question institutionally and personally, and ask it of ourselves. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord, his Lord Christ, has made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Now let me ask it a different way. If Jeremiah could look back along his back trail and ask were it worth it, he could look at young, beautiful Teotepe being introduced to Haramon and say there's David's royal seed. I have run my course. I have fulfilled my task. God has used me to tear down and to build and to plant. If Herbert W. Armstrong were to look back and to say, has it been worth it? And he were to evaluate what is going out from two different sources today, Pasadena, California, or Tyler, Texas. I will leave you to answer what his response would be. As he read 20th Century Watch, January 1990, and the booklet, Europe and America in Prophecy, and saw my telecast from the Middle East, and about the United States of Europe, and a reunified Germany, and about Russia, and the most recently advertised reprint of that very same article, as opposed to those who are saying, we don't emphasize prophecy anymore. Then I think my father would be overcome and would walk up to me and put his arms around me and I around him, and he would say, Ted, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, little did I know that God would use you to carry on the work he gave me to do. I believe that down to the marrow of my bones. If I thought for one instant that a man in Pasadena, California, had been given my father's legacy, I'd strap some old used tires to my knees and take off down this aisle right here and out that door and walk on my knees to Pasadena, California, because it'd be one place I'd want to be, and that's where God's work is going out. Where is the work of God? That's where I want to be, because that's what God called me to be and called me to do. Where is the work of witness and warning? I can only look at the details, at the fact, at the evidence. And if you were sitting in a jury and you were to have in your hands the 1990 Plain Truth and the 1990 TCW and have in your hands tapes of the world tomorrow and my tapes, you would only be able to come to one logical conclusion, wouldn't you? Now, what is it we're saying here? In a file drawer in Texas, there is an article of incorporation, and it has the definite article, THE, on it. Not a church of God, but THE church of God, comma, international, all over the world. Is that an accurate statement? I believe God's people in the church of God that is called worldwide, that used to be Radio Church of God, and before that Church of God, Seventh-day Oregon Conference, are God's people. I believe the broad majority of them are converted, good, decent people with God's Holy Spirit. 
who know the bulk of God's truth. I'm not quite so sure about which direction in which they're headed today because Paul wrote at the end of his life, he who restrains, who holds this thing back, will continue to restrain as long as he is alive. But after he is gone, one will arise in the midst and become evident for what he is. And the church of God slipped into the abyss of apostasy and virtually disappeared from history. And had Almighty God and Jesus Christ come back in the middle of the second century and looked all through the Middle East and through the villages where the churches used to exist, at Iconium and Lystra and Alexandria and Derbe and Jerusalem and Thessalonica and Rome, what would they have seen? A great visible church that had decided to go along with the Gentiles and knock the rough edges off the gospel and embrace Ishtar and embrace all of the different dates, not the 14th of Nisan for the Passover, but change it, just alter it a little bit, so that the great visible church had become absolutely apostate and only frightened little refugees, sometimes living in caves in fear of their lives, were the true members of God's church, alive and extant and doing God's work in that day. I say to you in parting today, as Jesus did to his own disciples, fear not, little flock. It is in God's good pleasure to give unto you his kingdom. I hope you have a marvelous feast of tabernacles while we go on our way. I know it's been a marvelous feast of tabernacles so far, and I hope that you will all be hale and healthy and well, and none of you experience any difficulty on the way home. We appreciate your prayers. I'm amazed. My voice was so sore just before the feast started, I could hardly talk. And every single sermon I've given, it's gotten stronger. So thank you for your prayers. God bless you all.